This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing two incredible women, Michelle Fisher and Amber Winnick. Michelle is a curator of contemporary decorative arts at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and Amber is a design historian whose research focuses around maternal and child-related designs, policies, and practices around the world. For the past seven years, they've been working on a project that I'm eager to talk about today. It's called Designing Motherhood, which is a fascinating book, exhibition, series of public programs, and design curriculum that explores how designs from the menstrual cup to the breast pump to baby blankets have impacted reproductive health over the past 100 years. What's interesting about Designing Motherhood is how Michelle and Amber are bringing these objects into museums. Historically, designs like the breast pump, as Michelle will explain, were not taken seriously or rarely ever displayed in these institutions. Human reproduction is part of our lived experience and yet rarely ever celebrated or, until recently, part of design discourse. I loved getting to talk to Michelle and Amber about how cultural gatekeepers impact the way we think about womanhood, who participates in conversations about different forms of mothering, and how we value and devalue the feminine. Let's get to my chat with Michelle Fisher and Amber Winnick. Michelle, Amber, it's so wonderful to have you both here with me for this conversation. You know, I think we were ahead of the curve with how we started our relationship. (laughs) This is actually the first time I'm seeing your faces when you first reached out to me about this incredible book that you have put into the world 
I, I remember getting the email where you asked me to be involved and saying yes, like on the spot, because I felt like the idea was so powerful. And I think that was probably like mid 2019. And little did I know that we would just continue to stay in the virtual world and only meeting in the virtual world right now. And so it's just really wonderful to see both of your faces and and get a chance to talk about Designing Motherhood, which is this incredible book and exhibition, as well as a series of public programs that really explore the connection between reproductive health and reproduction in general and design, which is literally just my full geek zone. I mean, I think this book and just the body of work in itself is incredibly important and 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 really on time. And I'd love to hear how how it came to be. We remember getting your response, Erica, and thank the Lord there was no Zoom involved because we lost our cool. We were so excited. So I'm really glad you didn't see that part because we weren't together. We, we've done a lot of this virtually as well. Amber's based in upstate New York. I've been based in different cities during the process of this. But as with many parts of planning for this project, there was a very late night phone call. I was still in the office at the MFA. Amber had just put her kids down for bed and we called each other and said, can you believe it? Erica said, yes. (laughs) And so for us, that was a really big moment. You were, I think the first person we reached out to and we reached out on like a wing and a prayer we knew your work. We were so excited about it. And we reached out and it, our project at that point in time was still really contingent. It was, it had been for many years, something that we had done in nights and weekends. We were slowly building a team around it and that team has shaped it in indelible and really important ways. But there were many moments where we really didn't know if it would come to fruition. So your response was one of those moments where we thought, wow, someone we really admire and respect and believe in would said yes, like maybe this thing can be a thing actually after all. But so yeah, we should say thank you. In terms of how it came about, Amber, do you want to go first or shall I? Well, I mean, I think we were both working independently. We're both design historians. That's our background. Michelle was based at MoMA, right? And I've been independent for a long time. And we found each other through a pregnant friend, funnily enough. And (laughs) at a baby shower, at her baby shower, which Michelle hosted, we just locked in and connected over this like, you know, prime geekdom over reproductive health and design, which wasn't a conversation that was being had at all. And in fact, was shut down regularly in the institutions where we were working and studying. It just was not a topic that was welcome within the field. And so when we found each other, we were pretty excited to say the least. You want to take it from there? Yeah, we, we didn't know what it would be, but we kept having conversations and the mediums, which through which we often work, either writing or exhibiting or doing public programs, And when you write at the beginning, we wanted to write about this. I feel like when you put something on the printed page, as long as there are libraries and people to read, that's something that can really stay there. Maybe it's not something people read immediately, but it's something that can really change the course of history in small ways as different texts build. 
we were standing on the shoulders of people who had written many of these texts, many of the women, many of the women of color who we lionized and respected about many of the issues that we synthesized in the book and have come to look at through the Designing Motherhood project. But it really started with a book and we knew that even if someone wouldn't give us an venue for an exhibition, even if we couldn't do anything else, we could self-publish something and no one could take away our ability to write and to ask others to join us in writing. So that's how it started back in 2016. 17. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I also want to say that I think baby showers are power broker meetings. <laughs> I think they're under discussed, but I have made so many incredible life-changing connections at baby showers and not with the person whose baby shower it is, just the, the incredible kind of cadre of women or people gathered around to celebrate this transition. And so I think oftentimes very much, which is what I think happens in this book, where we hyper-feminize these rites of passage or events that connect to these rites of passage as, you know, a gender reveal and balloons. But, you know, if you drill them down to what they truly are, they are a moment of the kind of the deep, you know, wealth of your community coming together. And that's where incredible things can happen. So I just wanted to call that out because you know, in the book, it's the same thing, these kind of banal, you know, or, you know, simple objects that we use all the time, we don't, or we forget to imbue them with the power that they actually have. And so circling back to what you were saying, though, Amber, about how reproductive health and design were not a thing. Can you speak more to that and and talk about how the patriarchy and this very, you know, male-centric society we live in has, you know, created this knowledge deficit for women and people about the tools and technologies we interact with every day. Michelle, I feel like you should tell the story about Prémaman to the items show or the breast pump into the collection. I mean, those are two objects that really typify what Erica is. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is our story. I tell it because I was in the space, but I think it's really important to note Amber is an independent design historian. I've been an institutional design historian, has been an independent design historian because institutions are not particularly friendly places. I have 
plowed a career through different museums. I've worked at the MoMA and at the Met, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, and now I'm at the MFA in Boston. I don't yet have children. And part of the reason that I've been able to do this is because I child-free at the moment. Amber has three children. It is really hard to have any kind of care responsibility in any U.S. workplace. The museums and curatorial roles are particularly hostile to that. Um, we found out, um, a long story short, I was a curatorial assistant at MoMA um, in 2015, the job I'd wanted to do for a really long time. It's a fantastic design collection, perhaps one of the most preeminent in the Western world. It really sets the tone for the survey textbooks of design, elective books on design specialists, conversations on design exhibitions. And there's a really special exhibition that happened there in 1934 called Machine Art. When the exhibition was put on display, MoMA was actually in a townhouse in midtown Manhattan. So imagine a very ornate midtown townhouse. They created a white cube space in that museum and they brought in all of these wonderful objects um, that were related to technology and mechanics. So a self-aligning ball, ball bearing, an airplane propeller, springs, corning glass beakers. And they put them on white pedestals. They wanted to make them look like Brancusi sculptures. Uh, they, two curators, actually one director, Alfred Barr, who was the inaugural director at MoMA, um, and Philip Johnson, who had an outsized impact on modern architecture and uh, on that department where he was connected to it for over 60 years. It was my contention that those humble masterpieces, as they became to be known in the canon, that name given by Paola Antonelli, who's still the amazing curator of contemporary design there, would have included a breast pump if there had been different curators, not two men making the decisions. And so in 2015, I said, well, why don't we remedy, remedy that? You know, MIT is talking about the breast pump, the make the breast pump not suck hackathon just happened a year ago. Like this is very much in contemporary culture and in contemporary conversation in design. And I was told absolutely that that wouldn't pass muster at the um, acquisitions committee in our architecture and design department. My wonderful mentor, Paula, said, you, know, you, should, you guys should continue thinking about this. It's wonderful, but it just it will never find a home here. And that is because all of the decision makers who think about what comes into museum collections, what gets displayed in museum um, exhibitions, what can be written about, what gets funded, um, what gets published, none of them have lactated a day in their life. None of them have had the concern about perhaps lactating is it's not part of their spectrum of experience. And I think that's so important to note because as curators, as culture guardians, we are gatekeepers to knowledge, information and stories. That's why museums need a much more diverse staff than they currently have. But yeah, that's, that's the patriarchy right there. That's why, you know, some museum collections do have this material, it's mostly medical museums, but even then like medical museums are still a lot behind in terms of uh, talking about things like medical racism, for example, in their walls. And so the patriarchy works in lots of ways to make sure that this conversation doesn't happen in spaces where the public can meet it. And in an attempt to push back on the patriarchy, even in this conversation, I'm really curious from both of you, because I'm sure you both have certain components within the book that felt that you felt more tethered to which designs in the book did you find the most innovative or the ones that made you just really like pause and 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 really sit with you know how how profound you know the kind of design execution was and again I, I really want to just couch that and say 
The breast pump is an incredible design feat. And because of the patriarchy, and again, as you shared, Michelle, you know, the very limited range of experience of the cis male body, we don't celebrate it. And in fact, there can be more kind of ire around it, in fact. And, you know, and I think that ire really comes from a place of the fact that women are not prioritized in design. And so the breast pump, although it is incredibly innovative, is a device that needs a lot more iteration (laughs) to be, to be better. And so, you know, keeping that in mind, again, deeply curious about your kind of favorite designs in terms of the collection you put together. It's like picking between our children, right, Amber? You go first. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, there are, there's a lot of good within the book, but I think one of the things that I'm particularly proud of is that we have the good, we have the bad, and we have the really, really ugly included in the book. So, you know, we're talking about all of these designs, you know, the successful ones and the not so successful ones. And I think that bolsters the conversations in many ways, but definitely one of my favorite design feats when we're talking about, you know, the real successes, the menstrual cup. I mean, you know, it's a very, very old technology. The first mm, kind of messy patent for the menstrual cup way predated so many of the other menstrual technologies that we have. It was in 1867. So, I mean, think about that. That is a very long time ago. In the form that we know it now, which was vulcanized rubber, was created by Leona Chalmers in 1934, which has still predated the tampon, you know, something that we think of as, you know, a a major player in terms of menstrual technologies. Leona Chalmers was an actress on Broadway and, you know, it was the time of ready, ready to wear fashion. And she really saw the menstrual cup as an aid to fashion. It allowed her to wear her white silk dresses, right? Because she wasn't going to be leaking all over the place on stage. So, you know, couching it in these fashion terms, it was fascinating. Both Michelle and I have a background in fashion history. So this was like candy for us to, you know, delve more into. The the menstrual cup didn't really lift off for many more decades to come. Though she tried, Leona Chalmers tried in the 60s, again, got some funding to, you know, better it. But rubber shortages got in the way, these kinds of very practical things. But yeah, it's it's really such a unique design that, you know, not only is smart because it works so well, but it's also environmentally friendly. It's one object that one needs rather than many objects that are disposable. Um, so it's uh, user-friendly, it saves money, it prevents you know, environmental destruction. It really is like such a smart design and such an old one too. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So... 
Get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. I'm surprised to hear that the menstrual cup predated the tampon. I did not know that. And I always love learning something I don't know. And I think that's so interesting in terms of our current kind of collective psyche around menstrual cups where people are just, you know, coming to them now and and they're sitting in all the stores and you can find them pretty much everywhere. And to think that they had been around all along. Yeah. I mean, in one form or another, but yeah, it was such a novel idea the idea that we could collect menstrual blood inside of us rather than like allow it to leak out and, you know, then collect it. Right. It was so revolutionary yet like pretty old idea actually. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what the project traces, the ways in which objects meet our cultural, social, economic, and political climates. And so for so long, I had not, I didn't use a menstrual cup, I'm using one right now, but I didn't use one until my thirties. Um, and it was when somebody said to me, oh, you should try this. We are so often shaped by what we inherit either as the, 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 the person who helped us when we first menstruated, but also then all of the advertising that goes along with menstruation and certainly in the UK where I grew up and in this country, there's a lot of shame that we know around that kind of advertising where people are told like, don't leak, don't show it. It's, you know, the worst possible thing. You can't even have uh, red liquid blood shown on adverts. It's always blue or a different color. That's changed in the last couple of years. There's been a gradual movement to reject any kind of shaming around something that's it's so incredibly natural. But I think the, the, the notion of being able to talk about this openly, to learn about the many different methods available to you for menstruating, for you know, contraception, for really anything else on that reproductive arc, I think that is something that we're all seeing kind of build out in public in another moment again. It's not the only moment by any means. Again, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants when we're having these conversations because many before us have spoken openly and tried to, to, to think about shattering those taboos. But I think it's a very specific cultural moment that we often talk about related to the work of activists around Me Too and Time's Up, these sort of larger cultural statements about not being ashamed about saying it's my body, it's my choice, I want to be informed and I want to be able to make decisions about it. I completely agree. And I think, you know, in terms of, you know, thinking about the socioeconomic components and understanding that people with a female body or female parts, when they are interacting with any, you know, any, any devices, any tools, any technologies, they're really bringing their entire lived experience to that interaction. And I think that's very much a, not to gender it, but a, I would say a non-patriarchal approach to design. Like what is a person's lived experience? How is that going to graft onto the thing that they're using? And, you know, in in keeping with that thinking, what design for you really stood out Hmm. in the book? There are so many. I mean, I'm. Uh, it is hard to pick. There was one actually that we 
that came to us. We didn't, we, we cannot take credit for, for finding it. We did a talk and we got a question about pelvic prolapse. And this is something my own mom had had. I, I remember it now sort of as a, as a kid hearing about this, but she had a hysterectomy when she had a pelvic. We didn't know until we talked to the fantastic folks at Rhea, um, this very young company run by three women who were engineering students who met at Cornell. They had a class project. They decided to look at patents that really hadn't been given a lot of love over the decades. And they saw that the insertable pessary really hadn't been redesigned since the 1930s through the patent history. Something that I certainly didn't know when we first started speaking to them is that one in two people, so 50% of people with a uterus will have some kind of pelvic prolapse during their lifetime. It's incredibly taboo. People are made to feel very ashamed about it. Certainly access to being able to understand it, let alone treat it, is not always available. And they decided to create a, a, a silicon pessary that is collapsible and can be inserted and removed by the person rather than somebody having to go into a provider's office. We have it at the Mutter Museum in one of our exhibitions next to all of the things that have been pessaries across the ages. And they started out pessaries where, you know, balls of wool, oranges, other types of organic material. It really, you know, that that is a design process looking and thinking you know wait a second why aren't these designs being loved which is by the way a huge economic niche like it's not like you can't make money when one in two people with a uterus have this issue it's because people have been shamed into thinking that this is not something that you want to design for it's because it doesn't turn up in design studio classes which is why we created a curriculum for designing motherhood it is because we are told to be socially embarrassed about these things we call bullshit on that that's just not true it's not okay and as more and more people discover that this is a really interesting place to be having conversations, to be designing around, you start getting more folks like the folks at Raya. And so there are many examples of that kind of, you know, folks in their 20s and 30s going through design school. Uh, and those are the, the, the stories that we have in the book. The Jonas Speculum is another one of them. There's just really beautiful, smart designers who are not being told um, that they shouldn't or can't uh, delve into these topics. Oh, so exciting. I didn't realize you put together a curriculum for the fantastic, fantastic, yeah. fantastic, fantastic. We're making it open source. And so um, after this semester, we've been teaching at UPenn this semester and last fall as well. And again, by we, it's us and many other folks on the Designing Motherhood team. And we should name check them. Dr. Juliana Rowan Barton, uh, Gabriella Nelson, Zoe Greggs, uh, Orkan Talhan, who's our teaching professor at UPenn. But after this semester, we'll be making all of our materials open and accessible. So if anybody else wants to use the intro film in terms of us setting up what Designing Motherhood is, to use the book, to, to use anything really, we will make everything that we can make available for free so that others can incorporate it into their curricula. Oh, fantastic. So just dipping back though, you've both mentioned fashion, you've mentioned the art world, the curatorial space, the design world. And, you know, as we think about those different sectors, something that comes up for me is this idea of shame and also the idea of responsibility. And I'm really interested in what you both have to say to individuals in those different worlds around how do they combat shame and what responsibility do they have to illuminate or amplify this, this, this narrative around design and 
female bodies and 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 our and our understanding of it like what is the responsibility there hire diverse people to be in those spaces i've worked in them now for over 15 years and it makes me livid every time i see and you know people are watching people are seeing every time i see a new assistant curator announced a new associate curator chief curator announced and it's another white dude and that happens more often than i can tell you in architecture and design especially and it makes me so livid it makes everybody livid but yet it keeps happening when you look around you and look at the predominance of white cis men in chief curator positions and director positions but also in architecture and design positions specifically like look at the departments look at the museums where they have those specific places and there's a predominance of men in in, in places of decision making power I think there would be a whole lot less shame around these topics if there were just more people at the table, because then you have more experiences to draw upon. And many more people say, you know, actually, this isn't something to be ashamed about at all. And so I I, I think the responsibility is to say what you see, hugely active in unionizing at the museums at which I work, thinking and talking about and, and speaking openly about pay transparency. I put together a pay transparency project a couple of years ago. I'm always transparent with what I earn, transparent about the ways in which I came to my job, the ways in which I support and help access other people getting into the job as well, but also about how the job is really not structured in ways that are equitable. So those spaces have a long way to go. I think, Amber, you have a lot to say about that because you have eschewed those spaces for many of these reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's it has been fascinating how much these conversations overlap with labor issues, right? I mean, it's very, very direct. And, you know, my experience as a mom with caregiving roles has really determined a lot of where I'm allowed to be and not be within the art museum world. I've been very, very fortunate in my ability to carve out my own path, but it's come with a price, you know, Michelle and I have talked often, you know, we kind of have like this amazing shared career. If you look at both of our careers, it's incredible, but mine came with less titles and more children and hers came with more titles and less children. Right. And it's just, it's unfortunate that that's the way that it's been. What's your suggestion for fighting our own internal patriarchy? For folks that think that motherhood is not really their topic or I don't have kids or why would I want to spend time exploring this? I think, I mean, I agree with Amber and it's been part of my work for so long, thinking about this as a shared labor struggle. You don't say, well, I don't experience a disability, so disability rights don't really count for me, or I don't experience elder care responsibility, or I don't identify as a person of color, or I like, if the world, I mean, actually, I'll take that back. The world does work like that most of the time, which is why we find ourselves in this particular position. But I think when we think much more clearly about solidarity around labor and solidarity around experiences, you have to be able to think outside of your own experiences to make the world the place that you want to live in and be in and have your family in, no matter how that family is comprised or constituted. And so I think being able to escape or resist or push back against internalized patriarchies is about recognizing that our struggles are connected and being able to think about honoring and listening to the struggles of other people. Um, on our, our team, we also subscribe very wholeheartedly to shine theory. So if you can help somebody else shine in their best light, that only comes back and reflects on the rest of the community. 
So it's about being able to step outside of yourself, I think, a lot of the time and understand that while there are things that are directly important to you, that also, you know, that you, you have to be able to understand other people's issues and, and what really matters to people and what motivates them too. We also think of motherhood as myriad. We don't think of it as biological. I mother and I don't have children. I, I think, you know, you can mother across the gender spectrum. You can mother across ages. We always say that motherhood is myriad. And so it's a really naughty and difficult term, but it is also something that is so multifaceted. So I, I, I hesitate to, to, to say, I, I, I really don't know anybody who hasn't at some point mothered or been mothered or benefited in some way or offered that. And so it's something that really does touch almost everybody. And, you know, we say it over and again in the book, we all share the universal experience of having been born. We're all sharing these roles as caregiver. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to dismiss, oh, motherhood, isn't that cute? Is that because you're a mama? No, no, that's not it. That is, you know, this is life. This is what we all are going through. It's a very universal experience. And really focusing on the designs that shape that experience, that is so core to so many aspects of our lives, our culture, and can only help to better shape and lift up all of all of us. What you're both saying holds so much truth in that motherhood is a myriad. It's a myriad of experience for so many ways to mother and it doesn't necessarily have to be biological. And I think what the two of you have put together in this book and in this, again, I say body of work and it has a very particular sensation when I think about all that is covered in the book is this idea that we are responsible for one another and there can be deep empathy if we only give ourselves the opportunity to see each Mm -hmm. other more deeply and that's really what I think the book provides is this deeper look and this this entry point, whether you are a design geek or you are a reproductive justice advocate, or you're just a mom who's like, oh, that's great and cool. Or, you know, or you're a young, you know, female identifying person who's just like, wow, I didn't, I get to know all these things now that were not available and put together in a collection where you could just sit and be with things that you know, might potentially touch or impact your body. We often go back to an Adrian Rich quote because we love Adrian Rich, but in, um, yeah, totally. (laughs) In A Woman Born, she says, I'm paraphrasing him, but we have it in the book somewhere. She says, as women, we have to talk about our experiences, not only because if we didn't, we would go insane, but their truths, when they come together, they build into a picture that helps serve us all and helps us understand that we are absolutely not alone in these experiences. And I think it's the same, you know, when I first told somebody in public, this is what I make at the museum. And then, you know, for other people across the country also said, and this is what I make too. Nobody died, but everybody became empowered. Everyone was able to say like, okay, so now I know what I want to argue for when I go in for my next raise, or now I know what my whole department deserves as a pay rise. And it became this question of solidarity. So I really do think you know, conversation is often dismissed. And to go back to what you said right at the beginning about a baby shower, so often those gatherings of any kind, not just welcoming a new life, but any any kind of gathering of, of 
women and non-binary people, folks who don't identify necessarily with the patriarchy can be dismissed. We have so many English language words for ways to dismiss that kind of uh, chit-chat, gossip, gathering, whatever whatever it, it's, it's determined to be. But they are spaces where, you know, explosions can happen, where we listen to each other, where we hear each other's experiences, and where we form networks of those experiences that then become intentions and impacts out in the world. So... Yes, we, we sh- should always say the conversations that we have benefited from in the book, because there are interviews in there, there are many different types of oral history, come from people's experiences who have been talking about reproductive justice or talking about these issues for a lot longer than we have. And we honor their words and their experiences and their names are all in the book and, and you should honor them too, because they without them, we would have no project. Well, Michelle, Amber, thank you so much for your time and for birthing and designing motherhood into the world. Thank you so Thank much you for having us. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Michelle Fisher and Amber Winnick. You can learn more about their project at designingmotherhood.com and be sure to pick up a copy of their book. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.